I picked up my phone this morning and it flashed the date. Whatever you may think about it, believe about it, Jesus was so important that he split history in two. Everything that has ever happened in this, on this planet falls into a category of being either before or after Jesus. Richard Nixon, I heard, got carried away in his excitement when the Apollo astronauts first landed on the moon, and he said, this is the greatest day in creation. He kind of crowed as president, pretty proud of himself and what our country had done. And then Billy Graham reminded him that no, it wasn't the greatest day in, in, in history of planet Earth, but rather Christmas and Easter are the greatest days on planet Earth. And by the way, by the measure of history, Billy Graham was right. Christmas and history are the greatest. This man, Jesus, introduced a new force into the history that continues to, well, it holds the allegiance of over a third of the population of the world today, billions. Today, people even use the name Jesus to curse, you know, how it goes. Wouldn't it be strange to hear a fella miss his putt on the green and say, Thomas Jefferson? Or how about a plumber hitting his thumb with a wrench and saying, Vladimir Putin? Maybe that might be good. <laughs> but Historian G.C. Wells, H.G. Wells, sorry, who wasn't a Christian, who wasn't a Christian, said this about this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is, what did he leave to grow? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with vigor that persisted after him? By this test, Jesus stands first. That's what he said, a secular historian. And then, I love the way Philip Yancey put it. He said, you can gauge the size of a ship that has passed out of sight by the huge wake it leaves. And so too with Jesus. His wake was by far the biggest. But we're not going to talk about the history of Jesus today, although that is important. A great man as he was, changing history as he did. We're going to talk about him today, not historically, but because he's a person that has divided every one of our lives. He's a dividing point of our lives. According to Jesus, and what I think about Jesus, and how I respond to Jesus, will determine my destiny forever. Jesus is a dividing line. If Jesus were only a dead man that came back to life, None of us would be talking about him today. But he created a movement among his people, a movement that has become billions today. Now, you can have ethics, the ethics of Buddhism, without Buddha. You can have the tenets of Islam without Muhammad. You can have the morality of 
Confucianism without Confucius. But you can't have Christianity without Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, human flesh to save, to reconcile, to mediate, to restore. That, that is the message of Christianity. Jesus Christ. This poor, poor Jewish rabbi who lived over 2,000 years ago is still the most influential man in history, the history of our world. Billions of people over thousands of years has been transformed by the son of this Jewish carpenter. How is it that, how is it that one man who died a criminal's death has influenced kings, emperors, presidents, primaries? How is it? How is it? Who was this Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, the four men who wrote about his story omitted much of what we would have included today if we would have written it. They skipped over nine-tenths of his life. And not one word is devoted to his physical description. But, but what they do have to say and what they record him as saying began a Holy Spirit-powered movement that is changing the world even till today. Today, we are at number four in our series, uh, Fundamentals, Bible Certainties That Inspire and Bless. And so we're going to dive into um, this fundamental teaching, Jesus Christ. And this isn't going to be a merely academic pursuit. It's not going to be just head stuff. Because every truth in the Bible, every word of the Bible, impacts our minds and changes our lives in a deep, transforming way. Fundamentals, the fundamentals that we'll be looking at today, fundamental of Jesus Christ, change us, transforms us, moves us into God's image and makes us and the aroma that we give off as his followers even more beautiful. Jesus. Who is he? Who is he? Well, every major religion teaches he was a prophet. He was a good teacher. He was a godly man but the bible tells us he was more than that infinitely more than that and so today as we study jesus we're going to use the vehicle of his names in our study names as you maybe recall from last week uh, regarding our study of the father names especially back in biblical times have great significance value, and meaning. They tell us something specific about the character of the person, and it's no different with the name of Jesus. Jesus' name is significant. Speaking to leaders of the, the Jewish people, the rule, uh, Jewish ruling body, Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given among heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other name but Jesus. I like the way Billy Sunday, firebrand preacher of yesteryear, uh, counted the names of Jesus in Scripture, and he said this, there are 256 names given in the Bible for the Lord Jesus, and 
I suppose that this was because he was infinitely beyond all that anyone could express. And I think that's true. There's so many names for I did a, a Google search for Jesus' names and titles. And in 0.62 seconds, I got 28 million, 28 million, 800,000 responses. And one of the responses said, well, here are five names. Another one said, here are nine names. Another one said 50, 100, 500, 600. There was one that said, here's a thousand names for Jesus. And each one had a title. Each one had an important name that expresses truths about who Jesus is. And each is a door of appreciation uh, for who he was and the ways that Jesus ministers to us today. And all of them are important, but we certainly couldn't cover all of them this morning. We can only briefly scan a few of these titles, a few of these names. And rather than, than looking at what others said about him or of him, and titles that people used when they called uh, to him, we're going to look at some names that Jesus used of himself. And in particular, we're going to look at a group of names that are, in my opinion, especially important. We, we talked last week about the Greek language and its, its meaning in the I am name. Remember, this, this uh, in reference to Moses at, at the burning bush and God appearing to him there, it, um, he said, I am. And it's comparable to a person say, saying, I myself and only I am. I myself and only I am. And last week we noted that that's what God said of himself at the burning bush. He introduced himself to Moses this way in Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What's interesting is that Jesus spoke of himself the same way. He said, I am. And when he did, that caused quite a stir. He said to people one day, before Abraham was born, I am. That's John 8, 58. And when he said that, everyone around him who heard him say that knew that he was claiming divinity, knew that he was equating himself with God by this. He was making himself equal to God Almighty and they recognized this, those around him, and they picked up stones because they were going to stone him for blasphemy. They knew what, it, what he was doing. Jesus identified himself with uh, those same words when soldiers came out to arrest him. He said, I am he. Now that he is supplied, he actually only said the words, I am. And you can see that in some Bibles. New American Standard has the he in italics, meaning that it's supplied. I am, said Jesus, when they came out to arrest him. And those words were so powerful and his presence so forceful that you know what happened. The soldiers drew back and fell to the ground, it says in John chapter 18 and verse number 6. Jesus' name, I am. Jesus said, I am. I am the self-existing one. I In, in flesh and blood, I am. I love the way... Uh, British writer, theologian, and intellectual giant of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, speaks about this in his book called Mere Christianity. Here's what he says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said 
would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. That's a true statement, isn't it? Whatever you say about Jesus, he's not just a great teacher. Whatever you say about Jesus, he's not just a great man. What he said about himself, what he said about himself, that's what our focus is today. Interestingly, the Gospel of John records seven I am names for Jesus that Jesus used of himself. And those descriptions, that's what we're going to follow today in our study. The seven I am names that Jesus used and were recorded in the Gospel of John. Now to start out, just thinking about it, bread, I love to make bread. Bread is a staple. If you have bread, that's all you need. Bread and water. That's what they used to give prisoners. Bread and water. That'll keep you going for a long, long time. Bread was a basic part of the Jewish economy. Bread was basic to their celebration of, of Passover, uh, celebrating the deliverance of Israel from, from slavery. God supplied bread from heaven during those 40 years that Israel w was wandering the wilderness. And after Jesus had fed 5,000 plus men and women and children um, uh, with five loaves and two fish. You remember the story. They collected ba baskets. There were 12 baskets of leftovers from five loaves and two fish. And the people all thought, this is a miraculous sign. What we've seen here, what, what we've experienced. And then Jesus joins his disciples in the middle of the sea that night and goes across the, 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 the lake now on the other side, the people recognize Jesus has gotten there somewhere, somehow, and he's there again, and they gather around him, a crowd gathers, and he says to them in John chapter 6 and verse 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. So he was trying to encourage them. Because he sensed that they were there just for another free meal. They liked the one yesterday. They were back again today. And then he says these words that are so memorable. John 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. That's his first I am statement. I am the bread of life, said Jesus. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus. Jesus. As is as bread to the body, so as Jesus to the soul. That's what he is. As bread is to the body, so is Jesus to our lives. He alone fills a heart place in our hearts that nothing else in the world can. Jesus is the bread of life. I was interested that the January issue of Time Magazine featured articles about happiness. Uh, and the first article was a brief historical picture of happiness in the United States. And you know that the Declaration of Independence promises life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. 
That's what our Declaration of Independence is. And it's kind of interesting because for a country, that's, a, that's a, quite a revolutionary statement. But it's also quite elusive, isn't it? How do you promise? How do you establish? How do you guarantee happiness? Is it a matter of safety? Is it a matter of security? Does it come through possessions or success? People today are on the lookout for happiness. You know that. You probably are as well. People are stressed out, actually, about happiness. I read about uh, stressed out students on Yale University campus who pack the largest auditorium on campus for a class on happiness, an elective. It's called Psychology and the Good Life. It's packed. Thousands of students come in every time it's offered. The popularity of this class is no surprise. They did a study, and they discovered in surveys that one, less than one-fifth of Americans are happy. Less than a fifth. And furthermore, the study, studies suggest that more than a quarter of us are too anxious to engage well in life and work. Did you, do you see that? We're too anxious to engage really well in work or in life. People look for happiness. They're, they're on the lookout, and they, they're looking for it by achievement. They're looking for happiness through success. They're looking for happiness through wealth, which, you know, we know. And none of those satisfy. None of those things are really the, the source of happiness. We know that happiness isn't from externals. Happiness is an inside job that isn't dependent upon external factors. Happiness is a God product, a God product, a God-produced fruit that comes by eating the bread of life. That's how it comes, by eating the bread of life, knowing Jesus, being fulfilled in Jesus, filling our life with Jesus. That's what brings true joy. That's what brings true happiness. I want to ask you this morning as we go through these names of Jesus, and we talk about Jesus, the bread of life, do you know him? Do you know him personally as your Savior, as your Lord? Do you daily fill your mind with him? And is he your true joy? Do you follow his path? Isaiah said, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Yes, Jesus is our, our, our one true source of goodness and happiness. Jesus said, um, interesting, the door of Jesus' identity opens again with a second name a second I am name. And this one happens in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse number 12. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, here's, here's the second one. I am the light of the world. Interestingly, right after Jesus makes this claim, he heals a man born blind right after this. And the healing is on Sabbath. And he gets the blind man in trouble for this. It's interesting to me that in restoring the sight to this man born blind, such a stir would be created just because it was on the Sabbath. And it illustrates to me how easily we can go wrong 
on things. Eventually, Jesus reconnects with this man that he's healed of blindness because he wants to restore his soul, not just give him sight. He wants to give him eternal life. And so it says in John chapter 9, Jesus says to him in verse 35 to 38, do you believe the Son of God? And this man answers and says, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And then these words, and he worshiped him. That's what Jesus was looking for. He is the light of the world. Jesus, it says, is the light. He is the exclusive source of light, of truth, of wisdom, of insight that brings me life forever. He's light. He is the light, not a light. You notice that? He didn't say, I am a light. He is not just a wise person. He is wisdom. Just like it says in the prologue of the the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse number 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. When you take a candle and you bring it into a dark room, the darkness disappears. When you when dawn comes after night, the sunlight of the, of the great orb brings life and warmth and light. When the darkness comes into a heart, when darkness comes into a home, when darkness comes into a place, that when the destructiveness of untruth comes and lies and sin, that's disaster, but light dispels it. Um, I like the way that John Newton said it. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrow, heals his wounds, and drives away his fears. I love that little poem. It was early morning for me. I was up early before the sun. Our house was pitch black, and I was walking around because I figured I knew the place pretty well. Being there 11 years gives you a sense of direction without any light, I thought. Anyway, I thought. I was sure the stairway was a bit distant from me and some distance away until all of a sudden there was nothing under my right foot. And 16 stairs, a hard floor at the bottom, and a wall would have broken more than my pride. Fortunately, I skipped and hopped down about three or four stairs, still upright, still standing. But a night has come across the world. A night is here. The night of sin fills this place. And it's harder to negotiate than it is a dark house in this world. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus gives us wisdom and insight. And it's more consequential than falling down a flight of stairs. What he gives us, gives us eternal life. As it says in John chapter 8, verse number 12, he who follows me shall have the light of life. That's what Jesus offers us. Without him, Without Jesus, without his light, we live merely a shadow existence. But with him, we have the light, the light of the world. And Jesus reveals 
another part of his identity in the third I am statement in the Gospel of John. And this one's in John chapter 10 and verse number seven. You probably knew this was coming. I am the door of the sheep, said Jesus. I am the door of the sheep. Now the imagery is foreign to me, so I'll just explain it maybe a little bit to you. The door, the, the door is referring to a strong fenced enclosure for sheep and then the door that lets them into that enclosure. It's a protective pen. And Jesus said, I am the door to that protective spot. I am the door that lets you in. Notice he says, I am the door. He doesn't say, I am a door. He is the door. Like A.W. Tozer says, Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. He is the only way. He is the only way. He is the only door into a life forever. He is the only avenue of eternal life. And Jesus compares himself to the other ways. And this is what he says about the other ways. John chapter 10, verse number one. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. Yeah, there's a lots of thieves and robbers today who are saying, I'm the door. Now, Jesus isn't thinking of literal thieves stealing things. He's talking about messages. He's talking about information. He's talking about people and about systems that, and these things that make lofty claims about what they do and what they provide. And Jesus says, they're empty. They're vacant. They're, they're, um, they have nothing in them. Jesus says that, uh, and he, he calls them thieves and robbers. Now, it's the case that some science claims that we are purposeless a product of evolution. There are lusts in our hearts that say pleasure is easy. Pleasure is cheap. Pleasure can be had at a click. There are drugs and drinks that say that the high life will be the great life. There are foods and apparels that say medicate on me. There's grief that says there's no hope. There's revenge that says there's retribution is deserved. There's pride that says I'm right and you're wrong and doesn't think or examine my own wrong. But Jesus warns, these are all thieves. These are all robbers that steal our thoughts, that take away our time, that ruin our lives. And Jesus says, I am, I am the door of the sheep. All the others are thieves and robbers. Then expanding that metaphor a little bit, Jesus go on, goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. Not only is he the door of the sheepfold, but I'm the good shepherd. And this is in John chapter 10 of verse number 11. Jesus communicates his love and care for us by saying, I am the good shepherd. Now, I don't know that much about sheep. When I was young, we did have a few sheep, one at a time. The only one I remember the name of was Pete. And Pete was kept on a chain in our field, and he was probably the dumbest of dumb. And that's what they say about sheep. 
They're the most, of all the domesticated animals, they're the most helpless. They're the dumbest. They wander through pastures and lose their bearing while, while grazing and then are incapable of finding their way home even if they can see it in the distance. They can't figure it out. They're utterly hopeless when it comes to predators and they're totally dependent on their shepherd. And Jesus says, I'm the shepherd. And not just the shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He is a good shepherd. And that, that word describes someone who is good inwardly. They are good in character. He's a good shepherd. He's wholesome. He's good. He's beautiful. It also describes someone who is attractive and good outwardly. He is the good shepherd, he says. Jesus, a good shepherd, because he's righteous, he's beautiful, he cares for you intimately, and he provides for all our needs. He says in verse number 14, I know my sheep and am known by my own. That tells me, as it says to you, Jesus knows you. He knows all about you. He wants you to know him as well. He knows your challenges. He knows your foibles. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your strengths. He knows your hopes. He knows your dreams. He wants you to know him closely, intimately. He wants you to know him. And he says to you, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's John chapter 10, verse 15. Because he knew, and we need to know, that no angel could save us. No angel could bring, bring reconciliation between us and God for our deeds. Someone, only someone truly divine could reveal God to us, could bring reconciliation, could meet the requirements of justice, and have the power to recreate scarred human beings into the likeness of God. Only the divine in man could do that. Only the good shepherd, only God in human flesh could show us how to live a transformed life. And that's why he came. But he had to be veiled. You know that. He had to be veiled because no one, it says in the Bible, could see God and live. So to bring this human and divine together in reconciliation, he came as human in divine. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus, the good shepherd, who gave up his life on the cross, who gave up his life for us. He chose to serve. He chose to serve and give his life as a ransom, it says in Matthew chapter 20 and verse number 28. I like the way Johnny Erickson Tata says it. She, she said, God doesn't give us grace. He gives us Jesus, the Lord of grace. That's what he's given us. Now, going on from this uh, with another I am statement. Before the miraculous healing and raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus reveals himself and who he is with one more I am statement. 
He was comforting Martha, who was discouraged. She was distraught. She was dismayed. She felt like Jesus could have come in time to save and to heal her brother, but he hadn't. He could have, but he didn't. And you've been there before. I know you have. I've been there. Jesus could have if he would have. He could have saved. He could have healed. He could have prevented. He could have helped. He could have mended. He's capable. He's powerful. But he doesn't. I know you've been there. And you wonder, like Martha. But like Martha, so it is with us. It's because he's up to something better. That's why. It's hard to imagine, but he is. He's up to a bigger purpose in life. A life, a multiplying life, not just a single way. And to grieving Martha, despairing Martha, and to you and me today, Jesus says these words. John 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection. I am the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. There, I love those words. They're an assurance to me. And they say to me, there is no resurrection apart from Jesus. There's no life today, forever, without Jesus. He does more than give us life. It says, he is life. <clears throat> In him, through him, is resurrection. In him, through him, is eternal life. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Jesus triumph over death. That's our triumph over death. Jesus' resurrection from the grave is our resurrection from the grave. In him, Jesus says he is the resurrection in person. Jesus says he is life in person for us. Jesus is. He will, he is. It's not that he will be. He is today the resurrection. He is today the life. And then he said to Martha, and he says to us today in John chapter 11, verse 26, do you believe this? That's what I want to ask you. I ask myself, do I believe this? Do I? And I want to encourage you, say yes to Jesus. Say yes to Jesus today. Now, the sixth I am. Jesus is thinking of the difficult days ahead. He's thinking of his betrayal. He's thinking of his arrest, the darkness and the horror of his death on the cross and his burial. And he speaks in this context, the sixth I am statement. And he had been talking to the disciples about going away. He had told them that he was leaving. And now he tells them again in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus is the way. He's the only way. Jesus is the truth. He is the embodiment of truth. He is the word incarnate. Jesus is the life. You know, the world seems as though it is coming apart at the seams. To me, it feels that way. Every day, every week, it seems that we unravel more. And all of us are, are just wondering. I know that for you, as for me, the utter devastation 
and the horrendous loss of life from that earthquake in Syria and, and Turkey. That staggers my thinking. It staggers our thinking. That powerful quake that uh, was the deadliest in Turkey's history. Over 43,000 fatalities so far, and surely it will go further as they, you know, unbury people under the rubble. Then that's not all. All these predictions of the killing in Ukraine just ramping up as spring comes along causes me concern. And then to add to that, the spy balloons. I don't know what you think about that, but all these unidentified flying objects that are being shot out of the sky it's a clear indicator that tensions between the superpowers are escalating. And I don't know about you, but our hope is not in negotiations. Our hope is not in military might. Our hope is not in humanitarian aid, as important as all these things are. Our only hope is in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. That is our only hope because he gives us life. We can have life ourselves then comes jesus final i am and it's a metaphor in john that highlights his life sustaining power this final i am is uh, an important story of of who jesus is and it comes at a time when in only minutes Judas will betray him. It comes at a time when only hours he will be uh, arrested. And Jesus encourages his disciples. And he inspires them with a powerful picture. And he gives it to us today, living in our time of challenge. And he says to us, I am the true vine. This is John chapter 15, verses 1. And it's repeated in verse number 5. Now, Looking across the fields here in the Walla Walla Valley, we can see this living proof of reality. A branch can't live. A branch can't bear fruit unless it's connected to the vine. And Jesus says, this is what I want you to know, follower of Jesus, disciple of Jesus. Even though he's not physically pre present with us today, his life-giving energy through his spirit, his power, his wisdom, to save, to restore, to guide, and to bless. It continues the same way it was when he was here. She says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus wants us to know in our day, in our challenge, in our situation, that even though we can't see him, even though we can't put our eyes on him or our hands in his, we are connected to him as much as a vine is connected to the branch. So too, we are connected to him. Jesus wants us to know Jesus wants us to be assured and join to him the way a branch is to a vine. Join to him, we have life-sustaining power. Join to him, we have life-giving power by his spirit. Linked to him in living faith, in living trust, we have hope. We have fruit, the Bible says. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All those things come to us from him, in him, through him, by being effectively connected, personally linked in a living faith to him. And I want to ask you this morning, would you 
want to say yes to him. Your little card that you have, that you've been given by the deacons, it was in your, your bulletin. That's your invitation to put your hope, put your faith, put your trust in him today. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, all things are possible. So today, I want to ask you, would you be sustained by the bread of life? Today, would you be directed by the light of the world? Today, would you pr be protected by the door of the sheep? Today, I would invite you that you would be cared for by the good shepherd. Today, I would invite you that you would be raised to new life today and in the future through the resurrection and the life in Jesus. Today, today, you would have living hope through the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, that you would be connected just like a vine to the branch in Jesus Christ. Would you sign that little sheet and, and commit yourself to God today to have new life through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the invitation you give us in Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And we take that life. We accept the message of the good shepherd. We want you, Lord, to be the door to us, inviting us into life protected and sustained by you. You, Lord, are the bread of life. You give us sustenance every day. You are our light. You direct us and guide us, give us wisdom and teaching. And today, Lord, we want to say to you, be our vine and may we connect to you like a branch and have life and life forever with you and abundant life today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.